Amen. Again, it's such a delight to have you here to celebrate Mother's Day together. And I pray for all the moms here that you have a very special day and that Dad treats you very special today. He should treat you special every day. But uh, today, especially on this day as we celebrate you, take your Bibles this morning and go to the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. It's right before 2 Samuel, if you're looking. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. We'll begin there in a minute. Being a mother, uh, biblically, is described as a very special calling of God. And before we read the passage, I want to begin by just mentioning four things that God created mothers to be able to do, women in particular, that I think will lay the foundation for what we read about a woman in the Bible named Hannah. The first of those four is this, God has created you moms uniquely uh, to be able to have children. Let me just say in the beginning, there's no gender confusion with God. He created us to be what we are. In fact, both biology and the Bible tell us that there are men and women. You either have two X chromosomes or you have an X and a Y. That's all there is. No matter what you say about it, that's all there is. God created you moms with the ability to conceive and carry a child for nine months and go through the, the joy of bringing them into the world. Uh, never, I observed it twice, never is such a painful event turned into such joy in, uh, in life. But God has uniquely created you to be able to do that and for society to say otherwise is just foolishness. And let me just say it clearly, men can't have babies. So uh, you, are, you are created uniquely. Number two, because God created you to do that, to be able to, to have a child and bring a child into the world, God has given you a special ability that we'll just call nurturing. You have the ability to have a connection with the child that you brought into the world uh, to nurture them. And what that means is to, to teach them, to, to help them to grow, to help them develop and there's so many things when I was writing this sermon that I could have jumped on to spend the rest of our time on, but let me just say this quickly. What is missing in our society today, among many things biblically related, is the nurturing aspect of moms and the lives of their children, to teach them right and wrong, to teach them of God, to teach them of respect and authority and all of those things that are sorely missing in our, in our society today. Children, I have observed today in general in society, have very little respect for authority. They have little respect for elders, for people that are older. They have very little consideration for others. It's a, a very selfish, self-centered world. The teaching in those areas begins on the lap of a mother, begins in the life of a mom. Uh, so your job, God created you to have, is very important. Number three... God created moms, women uniquely, that have children to be able to love them in a way that the child really connects with. And here's what I mean by that. A child will learn what love is before they can really define it, before they can speak or before they can know what it is because of the relationship they have with their mom. A motherly bond with her children uh, is where a, a child should first really understand what unconditional love is, which is 
a springboard to introduce Jesus to them, the one who loves us all unconditionally. So a mother's job in that aspect is very important. You remember we talked uh, a few weeks ago uh, about Moses' mom. Even though he was adopted into the household of Pharaoh, it was his mother who taught him the ways uh, that he should know about God. And then finally, God has uniquely enabled you to lay a social and spiritual foundation in the lives of your children. It is on the lap of a mom, again, in her lap as, as a mom ministers to a child, that they learn how to interact with people, that they learn how to have respect, and that they learn what authority is. Uh, Sherry's not here this morning, so I, she said, I'm not going to be there, so I know you're going to talk about me. So I am. She's not here. <laughs> she's taking care of her mom who had knee replacement Friday, so she's with her. But many times over the years that I see our children, the four of them as small children on her lap as she read to them and as she sat next to them and she read the Bible to them and as we prayed together as a family, and even times when it wasn't a family prayer, I would see her praying with them individually uh, over a matter in their life. You moms have an incredible gift given to you by God. And I'll sum it up this way. As a mother, you have your children's ear like nobody else in the world does. When they won't listen to dad, they listen to mom. Now, they listen to dad because I'm the hammer. <laughs> they listen to mom because she's the one with reason, they say, okay? She's the one who, who hears. So you have a very unique ability. And I, and I give you that very abbreviated list. Trust me, it could be much longer and when I do premarital counseling, the list is much longer. But I say to you this, you should prayerfully, moms, pray that God enables you through the power of the Holy Spirit to use all of those gifts to their utmost in the lives of your children because that's what's going to make a difference for them when they become adults. When they leave your home, that's what they're going to remember. William Ross Wallace in the uh, late 19th century wrote a poem that's very popular at Mother's Day. And I want to read part of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Listen to what he said before we look at 1 Samuel. And I quote, Blessings on the hand of women. Angels guard its strength and grace. In the palace, cottage, hovel, oh, no matter where the place. Would that never storms assailed it, rainbows ever gently curled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Women, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, oh, keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. I'll just add to that this observation. I would suggest that most of the young people who come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, most of the children who come to know Jesus as their Savior in an early age is directly connected to a mother's influence. That's how critical your job is. Well, let's look for a minute this morning at a woman named Hannah who embodied much of what we just talked about, who in much difficulty to become a mother and much difficulty in her home life was a godly woman uh, and did her part as a mother and as a wife. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin with the first three verses about, about Hannah's life. The Bible says, Now there was a certain man 
and Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Okana, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. Now verse 2 says that he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Peninnah, the priests of the Lord, were there. The story of Hannah's life begins with her home life. And it begins with her husband. Let's begin there. She was married uh, to a man named Elkanah. And according to the narrative that we read, if you read all about their lives, he was a wealthy man. He had resources. He had material possessions, uh, which was measured in that day, and animals and livestock and farmland. And he was wealthy in that day. The narrative gives us the indication that her husband was a saved man. He faithfully took his family up to Shiloh to give offerings, probably celebrating the Passover and other uh, celebrations that the Jews were required to attend. But he took his whole family. He took both his wives. He took his children. And he went to Shiloh when he worshipped on a regular basis on, on the appointed day. He was faithful as a husband to set the example for his family. Now let me, ladies, put, hit the pause button here for just a moment on the Mother's Day stuff and say a word to the dads. You said it's not fair. It's Mother's Day. I know. But it's appropriate here. Okana is an example for us today, men. Uh, of, of what a husband ought to be for a wife who's raising our children and who is walking with God. There are three things that Elkanah did that I want to point out very quickly that we should pay attention to in Hannah's life. Number one, number one, he, he was faithful in his spiritual responsibility. He was faithful in his spiritual leadership in the home. Guys, listen to me. God has appointed us men to be the spiritual leaders in our homes. You say, my wife knows more about the Bible than I do. Then fix that. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. You say, my wife is more spiritual than I am. Then fix that. God's called you to be the spiritual leader in your home. Okay? There's no earthly reason, no justification to abdicate that. You are to be the spiritual leader in your home. And let me just say this kindly, and if you, I hope you don't get mad. Don't send your wife to church. You come with her. You load up the family and you come with her. Let your children see you leading the family just as Elkanah did. He didn't send his wife to Shiloh. He didn't send Hannah and Penina and the children to Shiloh and go, I'm busy. You guys go down there and give the offerings and I'll come later. No, he loaded them up and he went with them. Guys, you need to do that. Number two, your wife, the mother of your children, needs to know that she's the priority in your life. She needs to know that, that, you, are, that you are devoted to serve her and that you are there to make her all that she should be for the Lord. Because remember, in marriage, what God said, we are completers of one another. And so you have to be committed to her. You say, how does my wife know she's the priority in my life? Because you give her your time. You give her your time. What we prioritize in our life, we give time to, i.e., our family, our wives, serving God, worship and corporate worship. And thirdly, very quickly, guys, unconditional love. Your wife needs to know without doubt, without reservation, that she, that she is exclusively the one you give your love and attention to. She should never have a doubt about that. She should be comfortable and able to trust you in every situation. And guys, let me give you a warning very quickly. You ever break that trust, it's hard to get it back. You ever break that trust, it's hard to recover it. 
Elkanah was a man who was wealthy in worldly possessions, and yet he was a spiritual leader. He took his family. Now, he wasn't a perfect man, and I'm going to get on to him a little bit here in just a minute. But he was a spiritual man who led his family to do what they were supposed to do. He was a spiritual leader in his home. Let me encourage you men, listen. You don't have to be a preacher in your home. You don't have to be an evangelist. What you have to do is be a godly man who leads your family to follow God. As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You set that standard, okay? Elkanah did it, and his wives followed him. Now, there was a problem in his home. You say, well, boy, Elkanah was a great guy. Yeah, well, he was spiritually, but not in every way. Because when we read this passage, what do we find out? He's got two wives. He wasn't as smart as you think he is, see? He's got two wives. You say, why in the world does he have two wives? Well, in the culture of that day, polygamy was not illegal, and it wasn't necessarily frowned on. The problem is he knew better because when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created one man and one woman, and he married them. And the Bible clearly teaches it was God's design from the beginning that one man and one woman marry and remain together for life. He's got two wives. You say, why in the world would he have Penina and have Hannah? I think, though it doesn't say, I would suggest it's because of Hannah's barrenness. Hannah couldn't have children. And to have heirs in that day particularly was very important. And so sometimes if the wife that was uh, the chosen wife, let's say, the one that he loved, because the Bible's going to tell us men that he loved Hannah, not that he didn't love Penina, but Hannah was his first, if she couldn't have children, he probably took on a second wife, culturally, to have heirs, to have children. Now, the issue with that is it's against God's pattern. You say, well, that's easy for us to say it was him not having children. Yes, but listen, everywhere in the Bible where a wife is barren and the two of them pray for a child, what does God do? He gives them a child. Gave Abraham and Sarah children at 100 years old, for crying out loud. So all they had to do was get together and say, sweetheart, we're going to go to God. We're going to go up to Shiloh to worship. We're going to specifically go over to the tabernacle, and we're going to ask God for a child. Because that's what Hannah ends up doing and gets a child. So in his home, he has two wives. Now, everywhere in the Bible, let me just point this out very quickly. Everywhere in the Bible where people broke God's design for the marriage, they had trouble. You hear me? They had trouble. You say, wow, having two or three wives would be kind of neat. No, there's nothing neat about it. When you read the Bible, it is, it is trouble from the beginning because that's not the way God designed it. Abraham and Sarah, remember them? Remember Hagar? Same thing. Sarah said, well, I can't have a child, so you just take my handmaid, Hagar, and you have a child with her. Abraham goes, great idea. Not great idea. Because she had a child, and then there's fighting in the home, and there's difficulty. David, you remember how many wives David had? Eight. Trouble. <laughs> trouble. Read David's life. Trouble. Okay? Just trouble. Solomon. When I get to heaven, I just might say to him, You're supposed to be the smartest man in the world. What were you thinking? 700 wives and 300 concubines. Trouble. You know why everywhere in the Bible there's trouble when they go out, because they go outside of God's design. God has designed marriage, and this isn't a marriage message, but here it is in the home. 
He's got two wives and trouble. Trouble, difficulty, strife. If we would just do life God's way, if we would just do what God tells us and live life in his pattern, it works out so well. And it's so much easier. Polygamy, problem in the home. Now, the greatest problem here, as I just mentioned, was Hannah was barren. She didn't have any children. And she wanted to have a child, and she couldn't have a child. So look at verses 4 to 7. When they go up to worship, notice what it says. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Notice that Penina has many children, sons and daughters, plural. Hannah has none. But to Hannah in verse 5, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Well, now we're behind the curtain. God's the reason she didn't have any children. Verse 6. And her rival, interesting way to speak of the other woman in the house, okay? And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Did I say it's trouble when you have more than one wife, okay? Notice what happened here. When they grew up to worship, it was customary that Elkanah would give portions to his wives. Now here's where that comes from. It was permissible under the law that when they made an offering that the priest kept some of the offering and then the family could have some of the offering to eat. They would keep some of it to have a meal. It was customary for the husband to give to his wife a portion in accord with her children because that portion is what she would eat and feed her children with. So in the order of things, Penina should have gotten the larger portion. She's the one who had children, plural, sons and daughters. Hannah had none. However, Elkanah, it says here, loved Hannah. Do you see a problem already? There's two problems. Penina knows that Hannah is the one on the pedestal. Penina knows that Elkanah loves Hannah, even though Hannah doesn't have any children. And so there is favoritism. Does favoritism ever work out? Let me say a thing real quick here. Never play favorites among your children. Never play favorites among your children. Treat them all the same. Don't give to one child what you don't give to another child. Don't do for one child what you won't do for the other child. Because guess what? People notice when it's unfair, don't they? They notice when there's favoritism. So in this whole family arrangement right here, we got Hannah with no children, yet she gets the larger portion of the offering is given to her. When she don't have any children, Penina... We ain't said much about her. She knows she's second fiddle. She's known that since she got married because she knew Hannah was there first. She knows that Elkanah really loves Hannah and she's just there to have babies. How do you think she feels about that? Well, no, I'm married to you too and I'm your wife and this isn't fair and I should be treated the same as Hannah. So is there any wonder that there's strife in the home? I just suspect, I don't know what kind of house they had. But if it was the customary house with the flat roof, I think Elkanah spent a lot of time on the roof by himself. That would be my guess. I don't, think he could, I don't think he could spend a lot of time in the house because there's this rivalry going on. And if the rivalry is going on when they go to church, and we're always on our best at church, aren't we? What must it have been like at home? 
okay, between these two in the same house. And in verse 6, it, it explicitly says, and her rival provoked her severely. So Panina knew that it was a, a, a thing that really bothered Hannah that she had any children. So what do you think Panina always talked about? Look at my six kids, my ten, my four, whatever I got. You can't have any. And Elkanah's going to love me more because I'm going to give him more children, and you can't give him any children, so I can only imagine these kinds of conversations. We can get a word of encouragement here. Let me give it to you very quickly. We're reminded by what we're told here that Hannah's infertility was due to God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something physically wrong with her. God had closed her womb. You say, why would God do that? I don't know but I got some ideas. I have some ideas from the Bible about why God does things in our lives that seem difficult. In Hannah's life, we understand that even though she couldn't have children, listen to me, God was still at work in her life. God was moving pieces around. So sometimes in our lives, we come to a point where we say to God, God, why isn't this working out? Why isn't this thing going the way I thought it ought to go? Why can't this thing just be easy? Why is it so hard? And one day we'll get to heaven and find out that God had it all worked out to start with. That it was his way. He was working in our life, even though it didn't seem easy. Hannah did not give up, you will see. Good for her. But God was at work in her life. Let me give you three thoughts about, about her home and about the difficult situation she was in. Maybe, maybe you have some of these same difficulties. Her marriage relationship was strained. It was stressed. It was stressed because she couldn't have children. There was another woman in the house. This woman was always making it miserable for her. Her marriage was strained. Maybe her family relationships for Hannah was strained. Maybe all the other family that was around were not told about was strained because of the relationship in the home. There were circumstances in her life that she couldn't understand. Why can she have children and I can't have children? Why is it God gives her children and she's so mean and I don't have any children? Maybe she's thinking all of these things. God's timing is always right. And Hannah would find out later that God was going to give her children. Let's look real quick at Hannah's response to these things because her response is even more important than the circumstances. She could have responded in bitterness. She could have, she could have become a mean person. Do you know there's nothing worse than a mean Christian? There's nothing worse than that. Nothing worse than a person who says, I'm saved, and they're just mean. Hannah could have become that person. She could have become bitter. She could have become mean. She could have become angry. She could have become discontent. And maybe she felt all those things in her heart. But you know what she did? She went to God with them. And she didn't let them rule her life. Can I encourage you this morning, ladies? Maybe you find yourself uh, in a situation Maybe a marriage or a home situation or circumstances in life, you say, man, it's just so hard. Don't get mean and bitter and ugly. Take it to the Lord. Ask God for help. Listen, it begins with a relationship with Jesus. I don't know how a person faces life without being saved. But if you're born again and you're saved, take it to Christ. Here's something I hear sometimes in pastoral counseling, and Hannah could have done this. Hannah could have said, you know, I'm not happy in this arrangement. 
I'm not happy with Panina, and I'm not happy that she has children, and I'm not happy that I don't have any children. I'm not happy with Okana. I'm just not happy. And she could have said, you know, I think God wants me to be happy. Because God wants me to be happy, I'm going to leave this marriage, I'm going to leave this home, and I'm going to go somewhere where God's going to make me happy. I have had men and women sit in front of me in my desk in my office and say, I'm going to divorce my mate, I'm going to divorce my husband, I'm going to divorce my wife, because God wants me to be happy. Are you listening? Put your ears on. God is not nearly as considered or concerned about your happiness as he is about your obedience. And listen to this. If we will be obedient to God and do what he says, the happiness will come later. Someone will say, well, I'm just, I'm just discontent. Then obey God and let the contentment come. Notice that Hannah didn't do any of that. She didn't, she didn't get angry. She didn't leave. She didn't become a bitter person. She took it to the Lord. Look at verses 8 to 11. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I was right there for a minute. That is the statement of a man who has no clue. Think about what he just said. Why are you weeping? Dude, you know good and well why she's upset. You know why she's upset. Why won't you eat? Goes hand in hand, doesn't it? She's upset. And then he has the audacity to say to her, am I not better to you than ten sons? That's a question you don't want to ask. No, the problem is not husband-wife relationship. The problem is she wants to be a mother. The, the thing that she wants and the thing that she desires, only God controls. And here he is trying to pep talk her and encourage her. Be careful, guys. There are things you don't have to answer to, so don't, so don't try. Look at verse 9. So Hannah arose after they finished eating, by the way, there's, it's pretty cool there's not a verse in her in here of her telling him to take a long walk off a short pier. There's not, a, you know, there's not, and maybe she said it and God didn't record it, but again, her character, you know, her character that she's not taking it out on him when he's an easy target. She could take it out on him or she could take it out on Penina. Notice what happened. So Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Little background here. Eli and his boys, by the way, his boys are not good priests. So just to add a little bit of more to the story, Hannah is going to deal with a spiritual matter here when the three guys who are supposed to be helping spiritually are all out to lunch, okay? So she really is on her own. Notice verse 9. So Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. You know what all that is? Man, that's serious prayer. That's genuine prayer. She is pouring out her heart to God. She's in anguish. And she's telling God, Lord, my heart's broken. And I am hurting. Have you ever prayed like that? You should. And you can. When you feel that way, take it to God. 
She did the best thing she could do because God's the only one who can do anything about her situation. Nobody else can. So she pours out her heart to God. Verse 11. Now notice what she said. Then she, Hannah, made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor to come upon his head. A couple of quick observations. Hannah's difficulty in life did exactly what it should do for a Christian. It drew her closer to the Lord. You see, for those who love Jesus, your trouble won't drive you away from Jesus. It'll drive you to hold on to him tighter. That's what she's doing here. She's pouring out her heart to God. She's praying that God would, would meet her need. Let me tell you two things about her prayer that I really like. Number one, she's specific. She didn't just generically go, Lord, give me a child. Mm-mm. She said, I want a, a boy child. I want a male. Now, why, why is that important? She would have loved to have a daughter. Don't get me wrong, ladies. Why was having a male child so important? Because that's the heir. That's the one who's going to be passed down with dad's name, and that's the, the patriarchal flow. And Panina's got all the boys and girls. She wants a baby boy. And so she specifically says to God, I want a male child. You say, Pastor, should we pray like that? I say, yes. We should pray specifically. We shouldn't pray in generalities. When you pray for somebody, pray for them by name. Now, it's easy to go, Lord, bless everybody at church. Amen. <laughs> That's easy. That's lazy. But you know what? When you take out your, your small group Bible study role and you lift up people to Jesus by name, and you pray for them by name, that's powerful. Because that, that's, that means you care. That means, God, I want you to bless this person. And, Lord, this person has a need in their life. Bless them, Lord. And this person has a need in their life. Lord, bless them. Meet that need. We should pray specifically. When you pray for your family, pray specific. Pray for your children by name. You know your children, Mom. You know what their demeanor is. You know what their personality is. You know what their weaknesses are. You know what their propensities are. You know where they're going to get in trouble. So talk to God specifically about that. Now, God, you know, my son, he's, he's got a propensity to do this and the other thing. I ask you, God, get in his way. Stand in front of him. Lord, don't let that happen to him. Make this happen or do it. Pray specifically. I like the fact that she prayed specifically. Number two, do you notice what she did with the baby she don't even have yet? In fact, you notice what she did with a baby that's not even conceived yet? She's not even pregnant yet. She said, Lord, when you give him to me, I'm going to give him back to you. You know what that is? That's faith. Lord, I know you're going to hear my prayer, and I know you're going to give me a child, and Lord, I know you're going to give me a baby boy. And when I get him, I'm going to give him back to you. Moms, of everything we've said this morning, one of the greatest prayers you can pray is to give your children back to God. They came from him in the first place. They're a gift from him. And you give them back to him. Say, Lord, I present my children to you. Here's a, here's a, a truth that should encourage you. God can raise them better than you can. God can raise them better than I can. God can deal with them on levels that I can't or that you can't. So give them back to God. Ask God to use them. 
Ask God to use them in the ministry. Ask God to use them in a mighty way. Ask God to be glorified in them. You say, does God answer those prayers? He does. He does. I could tell you story after story of mothers who said, God, I give you my child. And God used that child in a mighty way. Let me make some final observations real quick. Why, why is this motherhood thing so important? We live in a, in a wicked day. We live in a wicked time. We live in a society, even in the school system, where they're indoctrinating our children and teaching them things that are beyond their years. They're influencing them to make decisions that they're not equipped to make because they're children, they're still adolescents. Our influence in their lives as parents, moms in particular, have never been more valuable, never more imperative that you as moms speak truth into the lives of your children. All of my children are practically grown. I got one that's 17. She's the last one in the house. She'll be a senior next year. (laughs) She does well. She's kind of working and schooling on her own now. But here's the deal. Those children are going to become of that age one day, and they're going to have to make decisions for themselves. And it is you, Mom, that lays a foundation in their life that they're going to build on. I warned all my kids from the time they were small coming up. I said, you're going to hear things out there in the world, and it's contrary to God's word, and God's always right. God's always right. And I said, you can write that down. You can mark it down. The world's going to tell you lies. God's going to tell you the truth. You have to put that in the lives of your children. Let me say one other thing that probably isn't in this passage, but it's important. Where your kids go to school, you need to be involved and know what they're teaching them. You need to be involved. Don't be the ugly Christian throwing things and stuff, but you need to be involved in your children's lives. And I can say this, and it's up to you, but there are places where my children were not going to go to school. That's all I'll say. There were were places I knew what they were teaching, and I knew what was going on, and they weren't going to go there. There were times when Sherry worked extra and I worked wherever I could and preaching and we sent them to a Christian school because I didn't want them under the influence of what I saw in the school where they were at. Now, there are good schools out there. There are good public schools out there. And there are good teachers. There are Christian men and women who are working in our school system. But I'm just saying, you know who has to be aware of what's going into the lives of our children? You and me. You and me. Because nobody else is going to pay attention to that. So pay attention, moms, for your children. Pray for them. Answer prayer. Let's close with this. Look at verses 19 and 20. Skip down. There's a lot more to the story we don't have time for, but look down to verse 19 and 20. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Our passage this morning ends with answered prayer. The doubters and the naysayers will say, well, you know, Hannah just got pregnant in a normal process. No, you know that's not what happened here. God gave her a child. God enabled her to conceive. And God gave her exactly what she asked for. God gave her a baby boy. 
Now let me close with this baby boy. Who was he? Samuel, the one the book's named after we're reading right here. Samuel. You say, what's the big deal with Samuel? She did exactly what she told God. When he was a baby, and as soon as he got weaned, and as soon as he was old enough, she took him to the tabernacle and left him with the priest. And she said, I promise to give this boy back to the Lord, and here he is. And listen to me, God honored her vow, and God called Samuel audibly, read the story, and Samuel became one of the greatest prophets ever in the land of Israel, ever. How did that happen? A mama named Hannah said, God, you give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you. Now, notice what happened in closing. She got her son, and just because he's serving the Lord doesn't mean she lost relationship with him. She could talk to her son and be with him anytime she wanted to, and yet God used him to be a mighty force in the life of his people. Let me close with this. Ladies, it all begins with your faith in God. It all begins with your trust in God. Your children are going to see that. They're going to see it. It all begins with your personal saving relationship. The gospel, the gospel is for everybody, men and women, young people, boys and girls. The gospel is very clear. We're all lost in our sin. We all come into the world as sinners, and in that sin, no matter how hard we try, we can't live for God. We can't be good enough. We can't do good. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't live for God in the flesh. It's impossible. But when a woman like Hannah and a man like Elkanah, they come to God with an offering and they say to God, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me. There is forgiveness and there's pardon. And in the New Testament age, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. And when we confess our sin and ask God to forgive us, he forgives our sin, puts his righteousness on us. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And so when we pray and we, and we want to live for God, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be honoring to him in our lifestyle. Is that where you are today in life? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you asked him to forgive your sin? Have you asked him to save your soul? You're not going to get into heaven without asking Jesus to forgive your sin. Just write it down. That's the truth. You're not going to get into heaven without being forgiven of your sin by Jesus Christ. You can't live for him. You can't be the mother, the father, the husband, the wife that God's called us to be in this book unless you're saved and you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. To where you at? I'm going to pray in just a moment. If you've never been saved, right there in that seat, would you do this? God, I'm a sinner. I know I deserve judgment, but I ask for mercy. God, forgive me and save my soul. Would you pray that right now? When we pray, would you ask God to save your soul? Just between you and God. Maybe you're a mom and a dad here today, a grandmother. You say, man, I want to be a greater influence in the lives of my children and my grandchildren. Do what Hannah did. Ask God. Ask God. He's the one who can make a difference in people's lives. You respond as God lays on your heart today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Hannah, Lord, of faith and motherhood, Lord, hand in hand. A woman who loved you and believed you, Lord, and she trusted you. She asked for a son, and you gave it. Lord, she gave him back to you, and you, you called him to be a great prophet in Israel. Lord, I pray for moms and dads in this place today. I pray specifically for moms and grandmothers. 
God, if there's a, a person here this morning, a man or woman, young person, boy or girl, who is not saved, Lord, I ask right now that from their seat where they sit or with their head bowed, they would say, God, I want to be saved. Lord, I want to be born again. Forgive me for my sin. Lord, maybe there's a husband here that says, Lord, I want to be a, a better husband and a better dad and a supporter of my wife as she's a, a mother to our children. Maybe there's a mom here today and a grandmother who says, Lord, I want to be a better mother and I want to be the kind of mom that prays for my children. Lord, I want to present them to you. Lord, move in our hearts today. Draw that one that needs to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, I'm going to be here. If you need to make a decision, if you have made a decision, come let me know. We won't embarrass you. Maybe join the church, be baptized. You come as we begin to sing. So